Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, it's all about hot vice president on vice president action. As largely forgotten white guys, Mike Pence and Tim Kaine laced them up in Farmville, Virginia. Who won? Who lost? Will it matter in the end? Surely our answers to these questions will be worth the zero dollars you paid for them, but we will offer them to you humbly anyway. Plus, we'll set up this weekend's presidential debate between the two people that America actually cares about. Meanwhile, is it possible that things could get worse for Wells Fargo? Weeks after getting beat up in the press for massively defrauding their own customers, the beleaguered bank is getting savaged by Wall Street analysts, shedding business partners, and trying to satisfy critics by clawing back compensation from their executives. Plus, did you hear about all the military veterans that the bank has mistakenly tossed out of their homes? Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform joins us to discuss whether we should just burn this bank down to the rafters. Finally, columnist Ryan Cooper is here, and he's going to join us for a look at the blossoming fascist movement in Greece, which is something that everyone is excited about. Is Donald Trump a harbinger of something worse already playing out in Europe? God knows, probably. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. And here's what happened first. Hey! Hey, everybody. Guess what? It's the So That Happened podcast. We're back with another desperate dispatch in this trying time in our lives. I'm Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press, and I'm joined, as always, by Zachary Carter. Good morning, evening, or whatever it is for you. Right. It could be any time at all, right, Arthur Delaney? Hi. I'm glad to be back. Be back here and now, whenever that is. Whenever it is for you. Yep. Terrific. Terrific. So uh, uh, I guess first order of biznatch is the vice president's. (laughs) First of all, you probably have forgotten there are vice presidents. Uh, their names are Tim Kaine and Mike Pence. There are vice presidential candidates. Candidates. Yeah, the vice yes. president is actually a man named Joe Biden. There's only one of him. Fact You're right. Check. You're right. Thanks for fact checking me. Uh, they had a debate in uh, Longwood, Virginia, at the wonderful campus of Longwood College it, or Longwood University. I'm sorry. It was called Norwood University by one of the candidates last night. I was there. It was an electric scene, I'm telling you, between two white guys. It got it was more electric than anyone said. People said it would be boring, but I didn't know Tim Kane would come out there acting like a total jerk. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. Um, yeah. Okay, so well, that was that was the uh that was the interesting uh first twist in the tale was uh the guy who went on the offensive right away last night was Tim Kaine uh, jumping down Pence's back right away and constantly trying to force Pence to defend Donald Trump. It was weird. This vice presidential debate really 
was a presidential debate fought by proxies. You learn very little about these two guys and, and their policy preferences. They they started off by asking, what makes you think you'd be prepared to step in to be president? And conversation very sw- swiftly turned back to cheerleading and defending. And the second big story of the night, I think, was that Mike Pence had a sort of standard issue defense of Donald Trump. Lying. Yes. Pretty good defense, really, when you think about it. It was effective. Yeah, I mean, what else could he have done? I, I don't know what if it was effective. It was effective in the moment, but the entire rest of the week, we've just seen story after story about how everything Mike Pence said at the debate was a lie. Right. I don't think that reflects terribly because well. Because they were easy lies. He was denying that Trump said things that Trump had said on camera. Yeah, yeah. literally, it was just, this is, this is Tim Kaine's game, was right. to come out and say, uh, I think Hillary Clinton is great. I trust her. I'd be, you know, a forceful advocate for her. And did you hear this crazy thing Donald Trump said? Mike Pence, why won't you right. defend that? And he was like, oh, Donald Trump never said that. What? You, got, you guys are leading an insult-driven campaign. That was amazing. <laughs> that was quite, that that so, some so backwards. So here's, here's what I was uh, befuddled by with Tim Kaine's approach. Total jerk is too strong a term, but relentless interruptions that were not in character for him. It was his strategy to come out and basically heckle Mike Pence, whose entire job is to appear normal and dull as a counterbalance to the wild Donald Trump. Yeah. So why would Tim Kaine, what is the strategic goal uh, for him to come out and be really wacky and heckling and interrupting a guy? Doesn't that just make Mike Pence look all the more sober and like in command. I can tell you I was there. Everyone give me credit for being there. All right. Okay, thank Way you. To go, I was Jason. I was there. Way, on way the to scene. go to Farmville. Yeah, thank you. Um so I I was there and I can tell you that it he he um Tim Kane Tim Kane like lost the room by inches every time he st- tried to heckle Mike Pence. There was a really embarrassing moment where Mike Pence was talking about uh, September 11th and, and began his reverie by saying, I remember being in Washington and seeing the smoke rise, blah, 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 blah. And Kane interrupted him by saying, I was in Virginia. And it was just like, not necessary, dude. Not it, necessary. Right. And then Pence, yeah, that was and then Pence very, really very calmly swiveled and said, of course you were in Virginia. We suffered a great tragedy as a nation and we were all involved. And, you know, I think that what was kind of weird is that if you were to provide Tim Kaine with a basic scouting report of Mike Pence, I would have said, look, he's not particularly smart. He's kind of dull. He doesn't have a lot of wit or charm, but he's absolutely cold. He's absolutely composed, and it is absolutely difficult to flap him anytime, anywhere. He is so steady and even keeled that he just is like a rock you can't knock. And I think that I think that Pence came out and was his absolutely even keeled, composed self. Even when he was saying things that were not true or even monstrous, he was <laughs> he was still just a calm center. And it really reduced the same to this kind of like yappy dog presence in the debate. I'm but, sorry to say, but it's here's true. The, but here's the thing: the vice presidential debate doesn't matter. Oh, of course not. Every of course, yeah. every it's, single year yeah. we go through this charade yeah. that people actually care what happens in the vice presidential debate. So knowing that, it's not a big deal if Tim Kaine comes out of this thing looking like kind of a jerk if, at the end of the debate, what you what is reinforced in the viewer's mind is that Donald Trump is a total asshole who said all these terrible things over right. and over again yeah. and that his 
his campaign is totally corrupt because they lie about it. I, you are I mean, right. It's just it was so curious to me that he felt the need to heckle, given that Mike Pence is going to lie. You don't. You didn't need to interrupt him to get him to say these bizarre, untrue I, things. I don't know because he he at first would say, well, you know, he's not a polished politician like Hillary Clinton. By the by the end of the night, he was just straight up lying. I think I think it got to him and it got progressively worse. Maybe it, okay. Uh, maybe it did worse. So okay, thought. let's maybe they saw something on tape. To be to to just just <laughs> let's just let's just let's firm up the premise here that 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 Pence was comparatively better than Tim Kaine and that Pence was. Uh, successful in doing his job of being somewhat calm because of the way uh, the Trump ticket needed someone who was a calm presence. The Sub Rosa story that came out under the transom last night was that Donald Trump was really, really upset by what he saw last night. He was upset to have seen uh, Pence given so much praise uh, for his performance after the fact, which he did not receive. And he was supposedly upset, according to sources, about Pence's unwillingness to actually defend Donald Trump just beyond saying, oh, he never said that. Um, and I wonder I wondered this when I was when I when I was driving down to the debate. And I wonder if this is a factor. Donald Trump had to cede the spotlight to someone else last night. Can this man see the spotlight to another person? Well, he, it, you only have to do it once. That's the only vice presidential debate. They have a, another presidential matchup on Sunday. So I, 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 uh, I believe that he didn't like ceding it to Pence, but it's, it's only for a day and it will be over. Uh, yeah, but the guy like Donald Trump with his own kind of like weird psychoses, I worry, I don't really worry this, but... I suspect that we could see like a massive overcorrection in like Trump's dominance. So, so this, because so maybe because this was a chess to, move. He by had to ch- eat watching everyone fall down on themselves praising praising Mike Pence, who was a guy he didn't even wasn't even sure he wanted as vice president. <laughs> yeah. So Tim remember, remember when he named up, him vice president and then and tried it was like, to oh, take can it back? I take it back? Yeah. <laughs> so Tim Kaine went out there yapping and as an attack dog, knowing that it would be an effective foil. That yeah, may, for, now, for Mike Pence, uh, and that that no, no, would no, make no, no, Donald no. Trump so mad that no, on no. Sunday his <laughs> head would explode on stage. <laughs> I was willing to support the theory. I don't. I don't feel like we need to like give Kane credit for being some kind of like eleventh dimensional chess master uh, oh. with, without saying without saying it. Um, anyway, it was an interesting. It was an interesting night. I'll just say this: more debates at Longwood University. That is the that is the takeaway from last night's electric vice presidential debate. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And we're back. 
Hey guys, I've got Zach Carter here. Hey. And our, our good friend, uh, the editor of the morning email, Lauren Weber. Hey, hey. The woman behind the morning podcast. Remember when we did that? You remember. Rest in peace. It was a great time. Um, <laughs> so here's something I didn't know until literally I walked into the studio to talk to you guys. There's going to be another presidential debate? What the fuck? Yeah. Sadly, you know, there's usually three. We have to sit through all uh, three I'm just kidding. I, I knew about that. It's just it's just that we just did a debate. And, like, normally there's, like, a little bit of rest between. Nah, we're getting close to November 8th, man. Like, I think Hercules, during the those tasks he had to perform, like, got, like, some days off between, like, the Augean stables and, like whatever else he had to do pass a continuing resolution. Um, but, but we do not get that. We, we, we have a debate on it's Sunday night too. We also Are you like... comparing us to Greek mythological creatures or the candidates? I, I've lost track. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's what he's doing. I've lost track. I've lost track. So it's going to be a debate and this is between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. You may remember them from the first debate where apparently the verdict is now officially in Hillary Clinton mop the floor with his day glow face. So Antifa. can Donald Trump come back? So, <laughs> so think think back four years ago. See, yes, think, think back four years okay, ago. Okay, Barack Obama comes out, first debate, Mitt Romney, Obama biffs it hard, exactly. harder than ever exactly before. Exactly the same scenario. Steps on a rake, and, and it was Joe Biden to the rescue, going up against Paul Ryan, shifted the conversation. Mike Pence maybe did that. So now, town hall debate, Donald Trump back in it, right? I just who is terrified for a town hall debate with Donald Trump? Anyone in the town hall debate? Actually, that's the answer. Anyone, just... anyone who might come into human contact with Donald Trump? That's the answer. But yes, I don't. I don't think it's going to go well for Donald Trump. I think, um, you know, they're they're going to try to like do debate prep with him and stuff this week, or they were trying to do debate prep with him this week because you were listening to this on the weekend, um, dear <laughs> listener. Uh, God, thank God Arthur's not here to scold me for that. Um, but he. You know, Mike Pence prepped for that last debate for like four months. Very um, rigorously, too. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, you're the vice presidential candidate. You don't really have to do anything else. Um, but, you know, he, it, it takes a lot of prep to actually get up to speed on, on a debate. You can't just take like three days of, of coaching lessons and then be ready to go. Plus, they've got to be out on the campaign trail. It, he's lost a lot of ground in several very important swing states. So he actually needs to be in those states campaigning if he wants to stay competitive with this, with his race. Um, so I, I also just don't see how that may, I mean, the stuff that guy was doing in the first debate, nobody wanted him to do it. He did it anyway. It's not like he didn't know that like talk insulting Rosie O'Donnell for no <laughs> reason was a bad idea. He just did it. Cause that's who he is. That's how he works. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't see how you like, I, th- that's that's the reason that he was appealing to the Republicans in the Republican primary. I, because he, he would do mean things to other Republicans and they like the dominance play. In that general election, I just don't think it works and I don't think he knows how to do anything else. Well, one of, one of the things that's interesting is Mike Pence, uh, he's, <clears throat> Mike Pence doesn't have a lot in terms of charm and he's not stylish by any, by any means. The charisma but, isn't there. But he's cold and he's composed. Yeah. And he's so unflappable. It was weird that Tim Kaine went into this thinking that, oh, I can needle Mike Pence into having a bad reaction. That has never happened in Mike Pence's career. Even when things – he's not done a very good job as governor uh, and, and is was probably not likely to be reelected. But that stuff doesn't affect him. That stuff doesn't affect him. And I think Donald Trump, he's not cold. He's not composed. Him coming out in a town hall debate being the hothead again 
it could get people. Well, I just feel like I get get ugly with some random person that asks a question. Do you not? I mean, don't you see some horrible matchup of someone kind of taking a line there and that going real south real fast? I do. I do. Because the way people who watch the town hall debate maybe don't know, but but they actually use uh, viewer questions and they're supplemented by questions and follow ups from the moderators. Yes. But the the news organization goes in and they they rummage through all the questions of the of the people there and they pick the ones that would be asked. And oftentimes you'll hear some questions that are very out of left field, not the kind of thing the media will ask, but you'll also the media will also find people to sort of say in their own words the big questions the media wants to ask anyway. And I can easily see some average person in the audience, and remember these are undecided voters selected by Gallup, so they're supposed they've come to this with no skin in the game, they're persuadable. I can see someone a perfectly normal person asking Donald Trump to his face in a room where Donald Trump can walk right over to you. Uh, I don't think, uh, how can you assure us that you have the temperament to be president? And he's going to reject that question out of hand and do his shtick about having the best temperament in the world. It's going to look weird. Yeah, I think it's a bad format for him. Um, and look, I don't think there is a good format for him. The good format for him is a whole bunch of screaming white people in Alabama just letting him ramble. That's that's how he does. That's that's how he wins. Or fourteen other people on the stage that he can play off of. Right. Yeah. Right. Where he comes across as the most dominant. Right. Yeah. yeah. When it's the reality show tiki torch uh, session and not <laughs> a one-on-one uh, policy debate, he's he's good. Also, this is going to require there's some physical space movement in this debate, correct? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I feel like that that right there sounds like a danger zone for for Donald Trump. I feel like you get into possible Al Gore territory. Of that mistake, you get into Lazio territory with Hillary Clinton of just getting too much into people's personal space. I was thinking the same thing, but here's something: I, I if you recall, four years ago there was a lot of when when not sorry not four years ago but eight years ago when John McCain and Barack Obama were doing their town hall debate. Uh, McCain did a really bad job hitting his marks, and he was often seen wandering around the shots. I, I worry about Donald Trump and and. Hillary Clinton having that kind of personal space moment. Yeah. But I actually think Donald Trump will actually do good in the sense that he will know where cameras are and know when and where to walk and how to hit marks. And I think that the one part of the town hall debate where he might shine is that all those skills he's built being on TV for such a long time will will avail him. I think he'll, I don't think Hillary Clinton's going to be a, a you know a stumbling buffoon up there. I think she has the same skills. But this actually might be at times if he if he knows not to like get shirty with her in her space or get shirty with a with a uh, with a with a actual audience member, I think that he might demonstrate tremendous skill in navigating the space and navigating the cameras. Yeah, one That's one fair. problem for Clinton is that this is a you know this is where you're supposed to be able to like connect with people and be personable and relatable. And we know that when she's on her A game, she can do that. And I think she has had a lot of confidence on the trail after that after that first debate. You saw some rallies in Ohio where she was really I thought she looked really sharp. But she also has the capacity to look totally forced and robotic and sound like she is offering canned pander lines. Um, and th- this is a set a setting where that that can hurt you more if you're if you're not on your A game for that. So I think she's gotta be that that's something to look out for. Well the other danger too is the expectations are so low on Donald Trump that he has to just basically be 
competent, which he didn't manage to do the first debate. Yeah. So once again, I mean, expectations are even lower. Would you not say? They're I mean, pretty. They're pretty low. But I. I but found the it, pressure is higher. Yeah, obviously. I found it interesting because we went into the debate talking about that and talking about how the media set this sort of like really high bar for Clinton that matching it. Getting over it wouldn't impress anyone, and like he couldn't not be impressed with Donald Trump, whatever he did, and we ended up not being impressed with Donald Trump anyway. And the viewers, so poorly, the viewers really reflected that that opinion. Um, And now you have a weird situation where you you're putting these two characters in a heightened environment and asking the same thing of them and having the same expectations. I, I I have to throw out everything I thought I knew about the way debates get graded because I thought Clinton was not going to come out of the first debate looking good based on that reason. But the polls speak for themselves. We'll see what happens Sunday night. Yep. Uh, Follow the Huffington Post Sunday night. Follow the debate on TV, but also keep us in mind. Come share the experience with us. We'll be your second screen. Yes. And uh, it's always a party here. Yeah, it's always a party and uh, try to enjoy it. And, you know, if you've got something better to do than watch a debate, by all means, do it. It's your damn life. <laughs> Have and fun. There's one more, so it's fine. Yeah, you'll get you'll get one more chance to watch this this magic of democracy happen. Okay, Lauren, Zach, thanks a whole lot. Uh, we shall be right back. Hey, everybody! I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. Hey, we're back, guys. And I'm with Zach Carter. Hi. And we're also with Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform. So we're going to reform some financial stuff right here now. And we're going to we're going to place a target on our good friends at Wells Fargo. So what's going on, guys? Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. uh, It was the largest bank by market share, market value uh, in the world until like a month ago. And then people found out that um, they had been illegally signing up their own customers for fake accounts. Over 2 million of them. Um, 5,300 people had been fired for doing this, but nobody in upper management had faced any consequences. And so for the past month, they have been having just sort of... um, it's sort of like the time Mitt Romney went to uh, England for like a diplomatic trip, and it just seemed like one thing after another kept going wrong. Yeah, uh, it's sort of been like that. Yeah, and one of the more messed up portions of this story is so there's um, some fine print in bank contracts often that say that if something goes wrong, you can't sue them. So before this scandal came out, a bunch of people discovered that they had fake accounts created for them, tried to sue in court, and Wells Fargo was like, well, you had a legitimate account with us, and that legitimate account had some fine print that said that you couldn't sue us in a court of law. You had to go through arbitration. So even though these were fake accounts, your real account contract still... (laughs) counts so you can't actually sue us that's the most absurd thing i think i've ever heard like it's a thing that happened can't 
like uh, I, I don't. I'm just speechless. I'm and, just speechless. And the, and the legal liabilities here. Wells Fargo has paid 185 million dollars for this particular scandal in in the context of a multi-trillion-dollar bank. It's not that much, but right. the legal liabilities are pretty significant because if you signed up, were signed up for some bogus credit card that you didn't know you had and you just start collecting fees on this credit card and you don't pay the bills on the credit card that you don't know you have, that can affect your credit rating. That can affect your ability to do all sorts of other things. Uh, actually quantifying the damage they, they did is really is really tricky uh, and figuring out when the scandal, you know, when the different sort of follow on aspects of the scandal will go away for them. Uh, does not seem easy. I mean, they're, they're even talking about extending the window for, for when this fraud may have may have begun back by several years, I believe. Yeah, the initial sort of fine was covering 2011 to 2015, but this has been something that Wells Fargo has been really excited about, this meaning trying to get its customers to sign up for as many accounts as possible. Right. It's called cross-selling is the fancy Wall Street like jargon for it. Um, <laughs> but it's one sort of fun fact is that in their annual, one of their annual reports, John's Stump has a quote saying the reason that they were targeting its customers for having eight accounts total with Wells Fargo was because eight rhymes with great. And so what? That's You're really fucking good... kidding no, me. No, it's a real quote. Cool <laughs> like that was because the... I've been wondering this whole time, why do they fix themselves on this magic number eight when some some people were, were, were legitimately succeeding in selling, you know, four or five? And it seems to me. Four or five is good. You can yeah. tell. You can tell your shareholders we're doing. We've we've made these kind of sales. They're impressive. And literally, their idea was like, eight, eight is great. It's like Tony the Tiger. And the thing is, nine actually, the been Wells fine. Fargo CEO all this time. Seven yeah. would have been heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you could only go there for seven minutes. Yeah. Um, so the the thing that's great though is that that was known to analysts and people who you know who considered trading in large amounts of the stock of, of, of Wells Fargo for several years, um, you would have to know that that is a predatory business pro- like uh, practice because yeah. nobody needs eight financial products. Nobody. Yeah, that's, you just don't. That, that's another question. No, I, there are no retail consumer financial products that, that, that you need. No person needs this. That's another question I had because w- w- the, the major scandal everyone's talking about is the fact that people were signed up without their knowledge for imaginary accounts and came to discover it later. But there obviously was also a, 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 a routinized practice of, of cold, not cold calling, but calling up customers and trying to pitch them on these different accounts. And I don't quite understand what makes that a good banking practice in the first place. Well, it seems to have been a mechanism that Stump himself, John Stump, the CEO of Wells Fargo, used to increase his own compensation and increase the sort of share value of Wells Fargo because it was something they bragged about over and over again to their investors. You know, we're so focused on cross-selling. We have so many people. We're increasing our footprint, whatever lingo that they were using. And so I think it was a a way by which they were trying to distinguish themselves from the other banks. Look at how people love us so much. They have so many accounts with us. You should invest in our company. I don't know that it makes sense from a pure dollar perspective, so I think your question is a good one. But it was certainly very profitable to Stump, who prior to this scandal coming out had already walked away with $200 million. There have been reports that he still, even if he's fired, stands to walk away with another sum, $200 million, although Wells Fargo has announced that he's going to forego $41 million in some of his stock. Um, but he's, ar- he's still going to walk away with at least a hundred million, even if he gets fired are, tomorrow. Are shareholders not savvy enough to like look at this practice and say, "Hmm, you know, they're talking about selling all these products, but most of these products are sort of superfluous and unnecessary to these customers' needs. There's, they're absolutely surplus to requirements. I know that deep down. 
why am I so impressed by it? I, is it just the allure of dumb money in the end winning over people? I mean, yeah, I think unfortunately that a lot of people, there's a lot of money, unfortunately, to be made on people that are not that wealthy. And that is remains the business model, I think, of a lot of financial institutions. And I do think that the idea is, it's kind of like once you have somebody already, they're like a captured consumer, right? right? We've got an account with you. Let's just pile on and get a bunch of more accounts signed up with you because we've already got you. We've got your information. We've got your email address. Um, but usually the way they do that is they send you a mailer, right? Like, you're pre-approved for yeah, a credit sure. card account. They didn't even bother to do this in this case. <laughs> they just signed people up for it. And it is worth mentioning that low-level employees, frontline bank workers, have been trying to blow the whistle about this for a really long time. Um, CNN Money had an article about a guy who called the ethics hotline and was like, listen, I'm being pressured to open all these fake accounts. And eight days later, they the fired Wells him. the Wells Fargo ethics hotline? Yeah. Oh. Eight days later, they fired him for being tardy. How unusual, because I understand that whistleblowers should all always proceed through normal channels to get the story out that always works out and it's okay don't worry about it never go outside the circle it is actually illegal for for banks and companies to fire people that internally report things and blow the whistle so it is it'll be interesting to see if there are additional additional, uh, legal consequences i have a feeling they should no longer call that an ethics hotline (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, I feel, don't I, call I, this get I, fired hotline uh, like literally yes that's what you should call it well, I would like to get fired so some additional legal consequences uh, not directly related to the scandal uh, last week Wells Fargo got busted for something different oh, right. which was uh, illegally evicting uh, active duty service members uh, and illegally uh, repossessing their cars without going through uh, you know the without getting a court order. These are members of the military. Wells Fargo is taking their stuff against the law. They paid $24 million to say, I'm sorry. Um, it's it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing that you, you, you <laughs> on the one hand, you're over here just selling, just creating fake accounts for people. When people actually do have accounts for you, you're, you're just taking, taking their stuff without without legal authorization. Um, and it is worth noting that if you like add up all of the fines that Wells Fargo has had in the past, it's like over ten billion dollars at this point. Um, so we have started to see some consequences. The state of Illinois has said that they don't want to do uh, business with Wells Fargo anymore. The L- Los Angeles city had some like bank program. If yeah. you're not banked, like here's a list of friendly banks that you can get a bank account with. They kicked Wells Fargo out of that program. <laughs> the state of California is no longer going to do business with Wells Fargo, and they're the biggest state in terms of like municipal bar. And I think the MTA, uh, yes, Mm -hmm. in San Francisco, and the the sort of subway system of New York City has also said that they are no longer going to try to do business with Wells Fargo. Well, those are good consequences. Um, But one of the things we've discussed on a previous iteration of this story, and Wells Fargo has been an ongoing non-election story we've been able to talk about is that Congress, uh, they do seem to relish pulling these guys in front of them in hearings and using these guys as scratching posts. And obviously, obviously we can, we can, we can pick out one or two, uh, members of Congress for being more forthright and, 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 and focused on actual trying to change policies that will do this. But, you know, one of the things we talked about on, on previous discussions is that a lot of these people in Congress, they love the drama and they get a chance to yell at these guys, but in the end, they're kind of like shrug, what can we do about it? Is there anything that Wells Fargo can fuck up to change the culture of give banks whatever they want? We don't understand their business practices. We have to rely on their expertise, even when evidence of said expertise never seems to make it onto the balance sheet. 
I mean, I do think that there is renewed interest in breaking up the banks by more people than have advocated for it in the past. And I also think that the regulators, for leaving aside Congress, because, like, are we really going to get anything through Congress? Sure, yeah. Probably yeah, not. No, no. But the regulators are finalizing a rule about uh, CEO pay and executive pay, and it was kind of weak, the proposal. It basically said, let's let the companies decide whether or not they should claw back money if there's wrongdoing. <laughs> and so the regulators could choose to write a final rule that says, actually, if they do the kind of stuff that Wells Fargo did, you have to claw back their bonus, and it's mandatory, it's not optional. So I do think we may see some movement there. I think Congress, I think we'll see maybe some more people calling for breaking up the banks, but will it pass? I don't know. There is um, increased interest from uh, a series of sort of Wall Street analysts in something like a a combination break up the banks slash deregulate community banking uh, legislation, which would basically be a big giveaway to community banks because um, you'd have you'd be hurting the big banks and then helping the little banks at the same time. Um, I, I, I don't know. Congress is going to be so, you know, throughout 2016, di- different parties in the Democratic, different factions of the de- Democratic Party were attacking each other for being unrealistic about promises. I think the realistic thing is that there's just not a whole lot that's going to get done in the next couple of years because Congress is going to be totally gridlocked. Um, so unless the Fed decides to get really, really... Uh, excited about living wills. I, I I don't see it happening. We right. should say, though, that the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was created by Dodd-Frank, is one of the agencies that brought this fine and is refunding people their money. So they will hopefully continue to do that when banks, conti- yeah, his the, banks continue <laughs> yes. to be badly. The continued will. virtues of the CFPB are apparent. And that's at stake in this election, everybody. Um, I'll just leave everyone with this. If you're working at a bank and you feel the compulsion to call your ethics hotline, considering instead sending an email to Zach D. Carter at HuffingtonPost.com or <laughs> Jason at HuffingtonPost.com uh, because we have no ability to fire you, but we do <laughs> have the ability to guarantee your anonymity. So drop a dime with us and leave your ethics hotline out of it. They're probably not acting in your best interest. All right, Alexis, thank you very much for being here. I'm sure we'll see you again sometime unless magically tomorrow all the banks start acting virtuously. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. No problem, no problem, Zach. Uh, it's good to have you too, man. Love yeah. you. Love you, dude. Miss you already, buddy. Yeah. All right, we'll be right back. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined as always by Arthur Delaney. And this week we've got a special guest, Ryan Cooper. He's a columnist at The Week on the Internet and the Magazine. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about an article that, uh, a column, if you will, that Ryan recently wrote. It's about Greece, what went, what's gone wrong in Greece, and how it relates to things that have gone wrong in the United States recently. So Ryan, why don't you tell us what your article is about? So basically, I'm just checking in on how the, 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 the broad scale of politics in Greece, if you remember, uh, over a year ago, in early 2015, left-wing party Syriza came to power in Greece with, you know, with the explicit anti-austerity, probably the most anti-austerity party that had come to power in a, you know, Euro, Eurozone member state. And they tried really hard for about six months to cut, you know, they they said, we're, we're going to get rid of, you know, we can't have this anymore. Our economy is in the toilet. You know, we're, you know, the whole place is just falling to pieces. 
and the Eurozone elite said no, and they deliberately caused a bank run inside of Greece to try to coerce them into just like signing off on what the previous government had done. And uh, eventually, you know, the finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, he had this crazy, you know, Hail Mary plan to try and like take back control of the Greek economy. But Alexis Tsipras, he, the, the, the prime, prime minister, minister, he wouldn't go through with it. So Varoufakis resigned. They took on the, you know, Eurozone program, didn't really get anything on austerity. And um, <clears throat> a year later, uh, the the political fortunes of Syriza have just collapsed. They've they've their their polling has fallen by like half. Uh, disapproval of the government is uh, at eighty five percent in the last poll I looked at, and and uh, uh, Tsipras's personal approval rating is like eighteen percent. So he's just horribly unpopular. So Greece has a terrible economy, like yeah, twenty percent unemployment, yeah, and, over and beyond. Yeah, and Europe is saying Greece. You got to spend less money. We're going to put you on a diet. And this left wing party rose to power in response to that and right. then couldn't get anything done. And now and now what's going on? Um, well, it's it's I think, you know, you have to understand this is like this is the second political party that has been destroyed by Eurozone forced austerity. So PASOK, the previous party. They they won the elections in 2009. In fact, Syriza only got five less than 5% of the vote in 2009, and the center-left party won. They had to do the austerity, and it killed them. You know, it's just... just wiped them out politically. You know, Great Depression. Like, the party basically doesn't exist anymore. So Syriza took over, and then the same thing has happened. And now, you know, the, the question is... So I don't... You know, I'm no real expert in Greek politics. I don't follow this, like like, you know, on a granular basis. I've never even been to Greece. But... You know, looking at the historical analogies, you can say, well, whose turn is it next? Currently, the center-right party is, poll- is, is winning in the polls. They've, they've taken up some of the gap that um, Syriza has opened up in, in their polling collapse. But the fascists have about doubled their vote share. They're up to about 10 percent. That's fascists. Tw- twice what Syriza had in 2009. And the next election will probably – it has to happen before October of 2019. And so, you know, they're, they're the only ones with a, with a uh, consistent anti-austerity line. And so if you're going to root around – you know, the, the, the Greek political system, like, like you know, it's a chaotic – kind of mess but it just keeps vomiting up parties that that you know and the biggest political thing is say hey you know we could fix the economy and you know Syriza tried it they couldn't do it and the next thing that 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 you would suspect would happen if you just sort of following the analogies would be somebody like Hitler who came to power in almost exactly the same circumstances so so the Greek economy is a continuously flushing toilet (laughs) two political parties have been vomited down into it so why not just vomit a fascist party, or, or are they going to be standing there magically when everything gets better? And oh no, I, I we think, have a, a little Hitler situation. I think that's basically the concern because austerity, the austerity budgets that that you know the the eurozone has forced on Greece, which means you know cutting people's pensions, which is sort of like social security, cutting yeah. wages for people who who work for the government. The government's a much bigger sector, a much bigger part of the economy in Greece than it is in the United States. So talking about just cutting wages in general, uh, forcing people to get by with less, laying them off. People don't like that on an individual basis and it hasn't worked for the economy for right. like 
like six years. Go figure. Yeah, <laughs> who would have guessed? Uh, so, so the the next, the, the, you know, so the, the next logical step is well, who else doesn't like the austerity that nobody likes? And the, the party that's been consistent about that in Greece is the fascist party. So you could easily imagine some sort of center-right fascist alliance taking over. So the if government. we, but if if the Greek economy is just a party-destroying machine, great. <laughs> Go have a have a whack, fascist. So I think but, what, what I really or, or like, would there be immediate bad? Well, what I really liked about Ryan's uh, article is that first there would be immediate bad things. Golden yeah. Dawn's name is party. They go around. They actually have like paramilitary groups that go around beating up people they don't like. Oh, it's really bad. Uh, I mean, brown shirts essentially. Uh, I think their leader is in jail for what looks like uh, murder. Is that right? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, literally leader of the party. Uh, so there would be. Bad consequences immediately. But if they actually broke away from the Eurozone and implemented an anti-austerity package and it helped the economy, you could see them actually holding power for a long period of time. That's ridiculous. Nobody breaks away from the Eurozone. (laughs) When has that ever happened? (laughs) Right. Well, you know, it just happened in England. So (gasps) there are some real there's some real reasons to be concerned. Well, um, sort of. I mean, the England was wasn't was never part of the eurozone, but but the oh, good point. The key the, the the European sorry, Union. The, the key is, is you're correct. Nobody has ever left the eurozone, and all the all the left wing economists, like like your center left economist Paul Krugman, would say, "Oh, it's impossible. You know, you'd have to replace your entire currency." And there are arguments from Varoufakis and other people saying that that's not actually necessary. And the key that, you know, most people don't don't remember that the, the individual member states of the Eurozone still have their own central banks that can still print euros. And so, you know, they're the ones actually implementing Eurozone po- uh, policy from the European Central Bank and the Eurogroup um, finance ministers. And so what you could do, theoretically speaking, is you you would have to just send you the minute you have take power send people in to take over the greek central bank and you say we're going to backstop greek government debt we're going to uh preserve the value of greek you know uh circulation greek uh, currency and circulation and we're going to slam down capital controls to prevent money from leaving the country and then you could say now we're going to reverse all the austerity so yeah, because so you have all this money you that you actually have a situation where fascists could Come to power and succeed. Just do exactly what Hitler did. And she just says, like, you know, we're breaking the gold standard. We're not going to pay any of these war reparation debts. And we're just going to, like, spend on our own economy. And the, and the result was just explosive growth immediately. They had all this extra economic capacity lying around to just, like, you know, grow really fast, put everyone back to work. And it was hugely popular as a result. Everybody who's not getting beat up likes it. So um, the, the I think the the thing that I worry about in our contemporary climate in the United States is that we haven't had 20% unemployment, but we did have 10% for a long time. And there are parts of the country that have basically been in a, in a continuous deep recession or depression for almost 30 years. Wage stagnation. Yeah. Uh, and there's a guy who doesn't have his own paramilitary forces, but who does have a whole bunch of neo-Nazi sympathizers who are spreading he, around he has, on the internet. He has a, par- a para-Twitter Force. <laughs> right, right. The Pepe the Frog uh, yeah. regiment. Uh, named Donald Trump. I mean, is this something that you think the United States has got to worry about, Ryan? Uh, I, I would say, you know, it's it's something of a worry. It's it's not analogous because, you know, Trump's not a real fascist and he doesn't, you know, the, the, the U.S. doesn't have this sort of the, the same level of just like total economic crisis. Not to mention, I, I forgot to say in Greece, you know, they have like practically the whole brunt of the refugee problem is landing on 
on them and, mm -hmm. and Italy. Oh, they have an actual immigration problem, yes, unlike right, the United right. States. But the but so you know, I would say Trump is he he's such an idiot that he can't possibly realize that this is kind of the things that he is tapping into. But I think that that what he the 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 scent uh, of what he is sort of getting, like he he has the demagogue's nose for us for what people are like to hear him say. And one the thing he's always talking about is trade, you know, like they're they're taking our jobs and and right. that sort of that sort of instinct, the kind of uh, what they what they might call a heron folk. Uh, democracy, where it's just like a, a, instead of social, instead of a social democracy, it's like oh, we're going to take our little delimited, you know, white people and be like ah, we're going to have nice welfare state for you and nothing for everybody else. Kind of how it was, you know, in the New Deal era to some extent, but more just much more explicitly racialized. And I think that the danger of Trump is that someone who's much more uh, politically sophisticated will come in after him and say, like, look, this is what he was, this is the thing that he was he was building on, and here we can, like, you know, blow it up into a full-blown movement. So you've got the uh, potential fascist takeover in Greece, but, but people are talking about fascist as a global phenomenon right now. Is Do you think that's apt, given that we don't consider the U.S. situation analogous at all? Like, is this a, a real worldwide thing? Um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's a future problem for possibly for the United States, but I, I would say the thing about Greece is that it's just the perfect scenario for them to really validate the view of fascists as the kind of people who will get things done that other liberal Democrats are too cowardly to do. And like this, I mean, it's just the, the perfect scenario for and them. And it would be set a really bad example and yes. inspire further movements around the globe, potentially even here. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Arthur, I miss you already, buddy. Bye. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform, The Week columnist Ryan Cooper, and Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, please subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. And you know we miss you already. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.